Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Some of the most famous lines in movie history weren't in the script. Perhaps an inside joke with the crew, used in the right moment, that became movie magic. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, with this sermon entitled, You'll Never Need a Bigger Savior which covers Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we come to you as a grateful people this morning. We're grateful that you have not left us without a witness. The Lord, you have spoken in and through your Son. And we ask, would you take this text this morning? And would you unfold it not just to our ears, but to our hearts in such a way that we would leave this place enraptured by the beauty of Jesus. Would you do this now? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 1970s, there was this little movie that came out that destroyed tourism at the beach for about a decade. Uh, It was by this little-known director that never really went on to do anything else great, some guy named Steven Spielberg. And this movie, uh, it's one that in a lot of ways has stood the test of time. It's beautifully shot, beautifully directed, has a beautiful score by John Williams. And it is one that, it, that pioneered what we tend to think of today as the summer blockbuster, this little movie called Jaws. Now, if, if you've ever seen this film, it is, it is basically just this very simple monster movie. There is a shark that is eating people, this is the plot, And then there's a police chief who, with his friends, has to find a way to kill the shark. That's the whole movie. There's nothing else to it. Find the shark, kill the shark before it kills you. 
And in the story, they, they know there's a problem. There's a shark eating people. That's a problem. And they know that if they're going to solve this problem, they have to kill the shark. And so the police chief, this guy named Brody, played by Roy Schneider, he gets on a boat with his friends and he goes off in search of this shark. But while they know there's a problem, none of them have yet grasped just how big the problem actually is until the moment they see the shark. Brody's on the back of the boat. He's throwing little bits of fish into the water, hoping somehow to tempt this shark to come close so they can kill it. And right in a moment when he's feeling relaxed, he reaches back his hand and throws out the fish, and suddenly there the shark is. And in what may be one of the most iconic moments in film history, his eyes get huge and he stumbles backward into the cabin of the boat. And before the captain has time to speak, he says, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> because he realized when he saw that shark that the enemy that they were facing, he was bigger than he had imagined. And the boat that they were on and the weapons that they had brought they were not sufficient to defeat it. In many ways, that's what's happening in Colossians. Paul has told us this is a church that they've heard the gospel. They've believed it. It is bearing fruit and growing among them in a remarkable way, a way that is, leads Paul to praise the Lord, to thank him for his work. They are being transformed and renewed, and there is something vibrant and real that is happening in their midst. But as they've walked with Christ, this little community that has been born of grace, they're starting, they're starting to waver because they're looking at the world around them and they're looking at what's going on within them and they're realizing that the enemy is bigger than they ever imagined. And they're beginning to wonder if Christ is really sufficient for their needs if maybe, just maybe, they need a better and bigger Savior. And Paul, with all the force he can muster, Paul is saying to this church, no matter how great the temptation, no matter how deep the sin, no matter how strong the enemy may appear, no matter how profound the suffering may be, you will never need a bigger Savior than Christ. Because there is no one greater, no one stronger, no one more merciful and no one more loving in this Christ in all of His glory. He is for you. And as we sit here today, almost 2,000 years after Paul penned these words, most of us, I'm going to guess, we hear Paul say that and we kind of nod our heads and say, yeah, I believe that. As Jeff reminded us last week, Christ is not just the ABCs of the gospel. He's the A to Z. It's in believing him, in him that we're saved and it's in believing in him that we are transformed. He is the beginning and the end of the Christian life. Everything we need, everything we require, it is in him. And I think intellectually, all of us, we would nod our head and say, that's something that I believe. If you were to put a, a test in front of us and say, do you believe Christ is sufficient, you would probably write down yes. 
But if you were given that same test and you were asked, what do you functionally believe, the answer might change a little bit, wouldn't it? You know, I remember when I was in college, if you'd asked me that question, I would have nodded my head vigorously. I would have said, I believe Christ is sufficient for my every need. He has atoned for my sins. He has saved me, redeemed me. I have everything that I require. But if you were to cut into me and look behind the veneer and see what I really thought and what I really felt, you would realize there was something very different going on. There was a scared little boy who believed, who would say in his heart, Christ, I believe you've atoned for some of my sins, but there are others that I still think I need to atone for myself. I believe you have dealt with some of my brokenness and some of my rebellion, but there are these other things that I have to fix myself. I believe that you were sufficient to meet some of my needs, but there are other things that I do not trust you to provide. And that wrestling, that struggle, that division, it is something that even though I have grown immensely since those days, it is something that remains. And my guess is, is that it remains in you too. The very same temptation that face the Colossians, it faces us as well. And Paul, Paul says to us exactly the same thing he said to them. He says the only solution, it's not to look for a better or a bigger Savior. It's to look instead at the one who is the only Savior and see him in his glory as the all-sufficient one he truly is. I mean, these verses, these verses are Paul saying, bask in the glory of Jesus. It is descriptive phrase after descriptive phrase, all of us, point, all of them pointing us to this one who is greater than anything we have imagined, who is sufficient for every one of our needs bar none. And you see it right from the very start. Paul says in verses 15 to 17, Christ is supreme over creation. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things, this is a phrase you're going to hear a bunch, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the things you can see and the things that you cannot, the things that are material and the things that are spiritual, those things that are of this earth and those things that are of heaven, all of them came into being through Christ. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you want to sum it up in just one sentence, it is this. Christ is king. There is nothing that exists that has authority over him and nothing that exists that is greater than him. And we need to be very clear right from the start what Paul is not saying. When he says Christ is the firstborn of creation, he's, he's not saying that Christ is the firstborn in the way that I'm the firstborn of Nancy and Martin Click. In the sense that they existed before I did, they got married, and then eventually I came into being. I'm the firstborn in that sense, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that Christ, he is the greatest of God's creation, but he is a part of that creation nonetheless. I mean, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, I've had a few, that is what they're going to tell you. It is a modern iteration of an 
centuries-old heresy called Arianism that says that Christ is greater than you, but He is not God Himself. He is something lesser, something created. And the reason the church has rejected that belief is not in spite of texts like Colossians 1 verse 15. It's because of them. What Paul is saying here is something he's picking up on this language that God has used before in the Old Testament. When he speaks of his people Israel as his firstborn son, and then later in Psalm 89 speaks of the Messiah as the one that he will make his firstborn son, the highest of the kings in the earth. It's language that doesn't speak of a beginning in time but rather of preeminence of place. It is language that speaks of the ranks and the privileges that go to a firstborn son born into an ancient Near Eastern family. It is a way of saying, here is the one who is supreme over all. Here is the one who has authority and power. Here is the one who reigns. And everything that surrounds this verse affirms that reading of the text. Because who does Paul say Christ is? First, he's the image. Verse 15, he is the image of God, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And if you've been around Perimeter Church, that's language you've heard before. And we preached a whole sermon series about the image of God in man, about this this reality that in Genesis chapter 1, when God created man and woman, male and female, he created us in the image of God. He, He designed us uniquely in creation to be the vehicle through which he would reveal himself in the midst of his world. Now that is an astonishing reality. There's a reason we devoted a whole sermon series to it. There's a reason we'll be talking about it for years to come. There's a reason Scripture speaks of it repeatedly because it says that every single person, no matter who they are, man, woman, child, someone that is low or someone that is high, all of them have inherent dignity and value and worth in the sight of God, and they are worthy of our love and our care and of our attention. But what Paul is saying here is more astonishing still. Because notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say Christ was made in the image of God like we were. What does he say? Christ is the image. He is the one in whose likeness we were made. Not a finite representation of an infinite reality, but one who fully and perfectly reveals God in all of his infinite glory. He is not something that is like God. He is God himself. No mere echo, no mere shadow, but the fullness of God. Not a created being, but as Paul goes on to say, the creator. He says, Paul, Christ is not just the image. Christ is the agent of creation. Verse 16, for by him all things, everything that exists, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Whatever you touch, whatever you see, 
Whatever you hear, whatever you taste, whatever you've smelled, and even the things that you have not, not because they're far away, but because they are invisible to the human eye, everything that exists, Paul says, came into being in and through one person and one alone, Christ Jesus the Lord. There is nothing that exists that does not owe its existence to him. And that includes not just the material things of this world, that includes even the supernatural forces in the heavenly places. The angels themselves and the supposed gods of this world, they depend on this Christ for their life and for their being. And whatever power they have, ultimately it is power that comes from him. They have it partially. He has it infinitely. He's the agent. But he is also one thing more. He's the sustainer. Verse 17. And he is before all things. Meaning, in the beginning Christ was. He didn't have a beginning in time. He's the one who always has been and always will be. He is the one who simply is. He is not a part of the creation. He is the eternal God, which would completely negate a reading of firstborn of all creation as being about a beginning in time. And then notice what follows. And in him all things hold together. One of my favorite writers is a man named G.K. Chesterton, and I, just a fair warning if you decide to try to wade in, uh, people either love him or they hate him. I, I recommended him to my dad, and my dad hated him, uh, but I love him. He's kind of maddening and, and fun all at the same time, and there are places, though, where I find him absolutely wonderful. And one of those is in a chapter in his book, Orthodoxy, where he talks about this this thing that he notices about the modern age. In the modern age, we have this tendency, when we look at the world around us, to just unconsciously assume that it is governed by these cold and mechanical, unchanging laws. And this is true not just of the secular person, this is true of the person who claims Christ. This is just something that as those who live in this culture, this is something we have just enculturated, we've assumed, we've imbibed, it has formed the way we view the world. We, we look at the world around us and we think, well, the reason that the sun rises and sets with regularity, the reason that when I draw, pull an apple off of a tree, it doesn't fly off into the heavens but falls to the ground, the reason that electrons circle nuclei and planets circle the sun, the reason that the cells in my body hold together, the reason that food gives me nourishment and air gives me oxygen, the reason that all these things happen is because that's the way they were yesterday, that's the way they are today, and that's the way they're going to be tomorrow. That's just the way the world is. And Chesterton Chesterton looks at that and says, well, what if it's not? What if the reason that the world continues on and with its astonishing order and regularity is not because there's these unchanging laws, but because behind it there is an unchanging God who so loves this world that he delights to do the same things over and over and over again like a child delighting in a game 
going again, again, again. One who so loves this world that he sustains it, moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day. Colossians 1 says, that's Christ. The reason when you eat food, it gives nourishment to your body is because Christ, moment by moment, day by day, delights to make it so. The reason the electrons circle nuclei and don't just fly away into the other is because Christ delights to make it so. The reason the sun rises and sets with regularity and the seasons come and go is because God in Christ delights to make it so. And if he were to cease to exist, so too would everything else. And if those things are true, then there are certain implications that follow, aren't there? I'll name just two. One is this. Christ brooks no rivals because Christ has no equals. When I was in fifth grade in Plano, Texas, I had a friend, a Hindu friend, who began to ask me and two of my buddies about Jesus because he knew that we proclaimed to be Christians, and so he began to ask us questions about our faith. And and frankly, I'm a little terrified to think of what we told him. I'm not sure how clear it was or how helpful, but we tried. We've got him a Bible. Uh, I stole a copy of Josh McDowell's uh, uh, More Than a Carpenter from my dad's library. Sorry, Dad. I don't know if I asked. But I gave it to him, and, and he read it. He read the Scriptures. He read the Gospels. He read the Josh McDowell book. And he would come back with questions. And then I remember one day he came to us and said, I think I want to become a Christian, but I just have this one question. If I become a Christian, do I have to give up my other gods? Now, the three of us who had been answering these questions, we were in fifth grade and we had been catechized in the church. We had been raised to know what the answer was. We just didn't know why that was the answer. We knew the answer was, yes, you have to leave behind your other gods. What we didn't know was why that had to be the case. Colossians 1 tells you why. Because those gods are not gods. They are created things that depend upon Christ the Lord for their very breath. And though they may defy him, they do it with breath that he gave them. Though they may resist him, they do it with power they have received from him. And in the end, because they were created for him, as the text says, they will one day bow before him. Christ brooks no rivals because he has no equals. The second thing is this. Not only do the spiritual forces and the supposed gods owe their existence to Christ, but so do we. You know, one of the most common questions that I have gotten as a pastor and that I have actually asked myself is how do I know that God cares about me? How do I know that he loves me? Because it is so easy to look around this world that we live in and to see all of the injustice and the evil and the pain and to wonder, not only does God care, but is he even present? Does he even exist? 
Colossians 1 would say, no matter who you are, if you want an answer to that question, look around you. Does the sun rise and set? Does air fill your lungs when you inhale? Does food nourish your body? Do the cells of your body hold together at this present moment? then whether you realize it or not, God is revealing himself to you in a powerful way and saying, I am alive and I am here and I am powerful and I am the one who cares for you because though you do not acknowledge me and though you even resist me, I provide you life. How can you respond to a God like that except with thanksgiving and yet is the, what is the one thing we so rarely do? Thank him. We use our breath for everything but the thanksgiving for which it was made. Christ is supreme over creation, but Paul says, no, he's also more. He's supreme over redemption, too. The Colossian church has heard from Paul that Christ has delivered them, but they are wondering if that deliverance is really in full. They're wondering if they need a bigger Savior to deal with the problems that they are facing. And Paul, he says, first see the one through whom God brought everything that exists into being. That is your Savior. But two, he says, see the God who through Christ is now restoring everything that he created. The same God who created the world, that is the one who is remaking the world, and he is doing it in and through Jesus Christ. And who is the Christ again? Well, first, he's the head. Verse uh, 18, he says, he is the head of the body, the church. You know, we, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this passage, but I'll just make it very, very simple. Uh, what happens when you take a body and you remove its head, it dies. You, know, you cut off my toe, you're gonna hamper me. I'm gonna limp. Uh, cut off my hand, my pull-ups will suffer a lot. Cut off my head, I'll die. Because what is the head's relationship to the body? The head gives it life. Paul says, the one who is life itself, Christ Jesus the Lord, through whom everything has come to exist, God has made him the life of the church. He is the one who provides for us every single thing that we need because he gives to us out of his infinite riches so that we would have all that we require no matter what it is that we face. He's the head. But not only is he the head, <clears throat> he's the beginning. He says he is the beginning, verse 18b, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The one through whom creation came into existence is the one who now brings in his person new creation into existence who takes this world contaminated by sin and death and purifies it and restores it to what it was always intended to be. 
He is the one who by entering into death conquers death and by rising from the grave begins a new creation that will one day consume all things, becoming the firstborn of what will one day be a multitude of people brought not only out of spiritual death into spiritual life, but out of physical death into physical life on the day of his return. And why has God done this? That in every single thing, Christ would be preeminent. The one from whom all things have sprung into being is now gathering up what sin is torn apart and bringing it back into unity in himself. And why can we know that this is going to happen? Because the one who is our head, the one, the one who is the beginning, he is also our reconciler. He is God with us, and he is God for us. Verse 19, for in him, in his person, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When I was in college at Georgia, uh, my friends and I were really big into going into concerts. We loved music. And if you've ever been around Athens, one of the, the big things to do if you're into music, was to go see cover bands. And there was a ton of them. There was Beatles cover bands, Led Zeppelin cover bands, Rolling Stones cover bands, Bee Gees cover bands. And we went to see some mixture of all of them. And, and if you went, you kind of knew what to expect. They, they would play all of those bands' famous songs, and they would try to play them as closely as they could to the original without any improvisation. They would wear the clothes that fit the era. If they were you know, trying to be Robert Plant, they had the long hair. If they were trying to be Paul McCartney from the Beatles, they had the bowl cut, which I'm sure was great when you went back to work. They had the instruments that were era-specific. And every time you went, you had a blast. But there was always this one little piece of dissonance. You knew that while they were up there pretending to be rock gods on Saturday nights, on Monday mornings they were probably accountants. They were not the thing itself. And I say that in no way denigrating it because it was awesome and I loved it and I would go again. Christ is not the cover band equivalent of God. He's not someone pretending to be God or mimicking God or, or putting on a sort of God-like appearance. He is God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. There is not one iota of deity that is lost in the incarnation. The fullness of God, it is present in Christ. He is truly God with us. That reality that all of the Old Testament has been moving towards, that God would dwell again with his people, that is what God has done in Christ Jesus the Lord. And why has God done it? For one very specific reason, to reconcile all things to himself. Verse 20, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself not just people, all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ came into the world to people who defy him with the very breath that he gave them, people who owe their very existence to him and yet don't show him gratitude but instead rebel against him. And Christ came in human flesh so that as a man he could die in our place for our sins, but he also came as God so that as one whose life was of infinite worth, he could atone for those sins and take what sin had torn apart and bring it gloriously back together. What Paul is saying is that Christ in all of his infinite glory and beauty and majesty, all of that reality, it has been brought to bear on God's world for the purpose of redeeming it. And if that's true, why would you ever think to look for a bigger Savior? Because who could possibly be bigger than this? And before we think that this is a work that Christ just does for people out there, or for things out there, but not for us, Paul, he takes this all, this high Christology, this beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he has done and why he has come into the world, and he says all of this, this Christ and his beauty, the one who is supreme over creation and supreme over redemption, he has come for you. He is sufficient for you and your sins and your need and your brokenness and your situation. Verse 21, and you. Paul's getting personal. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you who were so dead in your sins you could not even hear the voice of God, let alone desire it. You who were so lost, you did not know where to go. You who were rebelling against God with everything that you had. Christ. Christ entered into this world so that you would now be reconciled. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now. Not in the future, not at a later date, right now, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And he did it for this reason. Not just to bring you into the family, but to present you before himself holy and blameless and above reproach. Hear the promise. Christ hasn't just come to bring you into the family of God. He has come in order to slowly, bit by bit, over the course of your life and over the life, not just of us as individuals, but over us as the church, to conform us to his image so that when he presents us before his Father in heaven, there will be not one iota of sin that remains. We will be holy and blameless and above reproach, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And yet right here, there is this big pregnant if. This is the hardest part of the passage. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's a big if, isn't it? 
Because all of a sudden, after verse after verse proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ for you, suddenly there is this little question. Is he sufficient for this? Is there something that has still been left for me to do, or is Christ really the one who will carry me from the beginning to the end? And I want us to notice what it is that Paul is actually saying, because this matters. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that your assurance that you are Christ depends upon your present level of holiness. He's not saying that your assurance of salvation depends on your perceived level of fruit. He's not saying that your assurance of salvation is dependent upon whether or not in the eyes of others you've done great things for God. He's not saying that your assurance of salvation depends in any way on how many people you've led to Christ. What is he saying? He's saying your assurance is this. Are you day by day waking up and realizing that just as you had nothing when Christ came to save you and he gave you everything, are you, aware, are you awake to that reality and more and more and more repenting of trusting yourself and in every other thing and coming to the all-sufficient Christ instead? He is your assurance. He is your life. And what he begins, he never, ever ever fails to complete. Are you weighed down by sin? Paul says, run to Christ. Are you overcome by temptation? Paul says, run to Christ. Are your circumstances of such a nature that you feel as though you cannot take another step? Run to Christ. We live in a world where there are going to be moments when life comes at us the way that shark came at Roy Schneider, and we are going to realize that the problems that face us, they are bigger than we ever imagined. Colossians 1 says, yes, they're bigger, but Christ is bigger still. See him. Rejoice in him. He is the all-sufficient Savior, and he is sufficient for you. Father, we're so grateful that as we sit here this morning, we are not people left to our own devices or our own power. We are rather those who have been pursued and loved and saved in the one who is willing not only to assume human flesh, but to take on human sin. And Lord, we look to you, and Lord, we have hope, a hope that nothing can take away that in you there is no more condemnation. In you, Lord, there is no more fear of, of judgment. In you, there's not even any more fear of death because you have extinguished it in your own body in the death and resurrection of the Son. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.